Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Michael Q. McShane, the Director of National Research at EdChoice. He's been on the podcast a lot, but never on this particular version of the podcast. So I'm really excited to have you. He's the author of a new book titled Hybrid Homeschooling, which is the subject of today's conversation. Mike, welcome to the podcast. For those of you who can't see this, but he is uh, he is dancing and holding the book aloft. Uh, it's a really colorful, nice-looking book, by the way. Well, thank you. Yes, Jason, long-time listener, first-time caller. Okay, well, let's just dive right in with uh, the obvious question. What is hybrid homeschooling, and how is it different from traditional homeschooling? So you're starting with the trick question, I see. No, I'm kidding. Thank you. Um, yeah, so hybrid homeschooling at its basic core are schools that are designed where children attend class at home for part of the week and are schooled in a kind of traditional school building for part of the week. So it takes different forms across the country. Some schools do like two days at home and three days at school. Some do three days at home, and two days at school, all different permutations of that. But it's some mixture of at-home instruction and in-school, kind of what we would traditionally think of as a school instruction. And are there different types of hybrid homeschools? I mean, obviously they're on a, you know, there's a lot of different types of hybrid homeschools, but are there different types that are identifiable as like subgroups of hybrid homeschooling? For sure. Yeah. In the book, I create a kind of whole taxonomy of them because there are all of these different interesting ways in which they kind of intersect with one another and overlap with one another. But basically, I mean, what's cool about hybrid homeschooling is that it's not just part of one sector of schooling. You know, a lot of stuff we hear in education debates now is like, oh, it's private or it's charter or it's public. There are traditional public school districts that offer these types of programs. There are public charter schools that offer these types of environments. And there are private schools that are doing this. And, and even within each of those groups, there's all sorts of different flavors, you know? So you've got within the traditional public school districts, like larger and smaller programs, older and younger programs, within public charter schools. I mean, just the different types of charter schools that exist. Some are directly administered by school districts. Some are independent charter schools. And then within private schools, you've got religious schools, non-religious schools. And then where this all kind of folds back on itself are all the kind of pedagogical philosophies. So some of these are progressive, like Waldorf or Montessori models. Some are classical education. And so you can actually fall into multiple things, right? You could be a Montessori charter, or you could be a private Montessori or a classical charter, or any of those. So so there's actually lots and lots of diversity within this, this kind of particular modality. And how in terms of the structure? Like, for example, you said you know, might be doing two or three days in a traditional school environment, two or three days at home. Are there recognizable differences in how some groups are taking one approach and some are taking another? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one because there's actually, it's kind of fuzzy around the edges. Like when we talk about hybrid homeschooling, you know, there are lots of things like sometimes when I say, yeah, I did this book on hybrid homeschooling, people say like, oh, is it like homeschool co-ops? Well, like it's kind of like homeschool co-ops, but it's not really. It's like, oh, it's like online learning. It's like, well, not really. So I had boundaries around it, recognizing that there that there's fuzziness around there. What basically got you included in my book, I set up three criteria. It had to be physical it had to be substantial and it had to be regular. And basically what I meant by that is that you have to go to a physical school building that is not your house, but it's like a designated building for this at least one full school day per week, right? So now some do more than that, some do less of that, 
but that has to be something that's normal because yeah, some homeschool co-ops get together every two weeks or there's some enrichment programs that meet four times a quarter or something like that. So we had to create those things. But then underneath that, kind of to answer your question, there are lots of variations, right? There are some programs that really do see themselves as more of an enrichment where the, the kind of primary academic subjects are taught at home, but that time when you're with the other students in the school are more for like art and music and computers and phys ed or like those types of things. And then there are other where the flip side is true, where a lot of the, particularly for some older students where families might be less comfortable teaching advanced subjects like math, physics, chemistry, et cetera, that's the stuff that goes on in the school where other things take place at home. So there are like an infinite number of permutations that can exist within this model. And we see lots and lots of versions of them across the country. So maybe let's go from the abstract to the concrete and give us uh, some examples. I mean, there's one I can think of in the book. You mentioned a friend of yours from AAI, Josh and Rebecca Good, who operate something called Augustine Academy in Delafield, Wisconsin. What's their story? Yeah, so they were a part of, and I can't remember if they're still affiliated with, but there's a a group of these schools called the University Model Schools. And the first one was Grace Prep in Arlington, Texas. And they're like in a kind of an official affiliated network of these schools. In fact, if you listen to other EdChoice chats, my Cool School series interviewed the head of school for Grace Prep. We we, we spoke to a couple other uh, schools that were associated with this. But yeah, so that particular school was founded in Delafield, which is kind of between Madison and Milwaukee. And the goods, I as as is mentioned in the book, Josh and I worked together at AEI. And it's funny, they were one of the first people that, that kind of clued me into this whole school model just because they they left Washington, DC and they moved to Wisconsin. And I saw just like on social media that they were starting this school, which they started, you know, in people's living rooms uh, uh, around their neighborhood through their church. And I was like, wow, like that's kind of new. That's different. I didn't know what was going on there. So so they were actually kind of my um my entry point into a lot of this. But yeah, it's this, it's a small school. It is an Ambleside school. So this is another one of these interesting things where this group of families got together and they were Josh and Rebecca particularly were really into this Ambleside method, which is from Charlotte Mason, who was a British educationalist of like a hundred years ago. And it's like a quasi-classical education model, but it's like deep engagement with great books. And the teacher is kind of your guide to these great books. It's the book that's really teaching you and the teacher is helping you. And it's just a really fascinating model. But these schools normally are full-time in person and they're super expensive. And so what you had in that community was they didn't have an Ambleside school and they didn't have the sort of financial resources to create a full-time one. So they said, can we work something out here where we do it part-time, families handle things, so that drives down the cost, but we're still kind of all agreed to to use this particular method. And so, you know, it's a really fun story of not just the educational side of it, because like I had never heard of the Ambleside method before, and I thought, I think there's lots to recommend now that I've heard more about it. But it's also about the kind of community building. It's these families coming together in this shared enterprise where, I mean, they could be doing anything. You know, they could be you know, running a soup kitchen or starting a church or any of those sorts of things, but drawn together by this kind of shared philosophy. And, this, you know, this philosophy about how to raise kids, like not just how to educate them, but how to raise them and the role of faith in their lives, role of community in their lives. And so it was a really, really interesting group of folks. You know, 
there is an, an unfair characterization of homeschoolers as being sort of atomistic. In fact, <laughs> most homeschoolers belong to homeschool communities. But you highlight many times in the book the role of community and institution building. In fact, you quote Yuval Levin saying in his recent book, A Time to Build, that we need devotion to the work that we do with others in the service of a common aspiration and therefore devotion to the institutions we compose and inhabit, which I thought was just phenomenal because this is, you know, it's one thing to, let's say, move to a community that has a good public school and enroll your child there. It's another thing to then be an active participant in that school, right? It's one thing to pay tuition to send your kids to a private school. It's another thing to be volunteering at that school, right? Really becoming a part of a community. This is obviously a, it's a system in which the parents are heavily, heavily involved in both their child's education and, you know, the community that's created around the homeschooling. So could you, you know, talk a little bit more about the, the role that community plays in the desire? Like you mentioned a second ago, for example, that one of the factors was cost, right? It's a lower cost model. And so some families are, are, are going to it that way. For others, it might be an ideological drive. And for others, it might be this idea of community. So what is driving parents? Is it more cost? Is it more community or something in between? I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, I think that it is a lot of the parents that I spoke to in this, they have different views about raising children than is often the sort of predominant view. So a great example I gave this one of the school leaders that I talked to, I remember sort of bringing up that, you know, at back to school times. And we're actually seeing it now as as students go back to school after the coronavirus. You'll see that meme where it's like the kids are in the foreground crying, you know, they're in the school uniforms and they're crying in the background, like the parents are high-fiving or they're like popping champagne or something. I remember that school leader telling me, you know, our families don't really share that, you know, um, because these are people who just, they really want to spend more time with their kids. They don't want to spend less time. And so they have just like a different view about the kind of rhythm of school and how it needs to fit within their life. But you know, that institution point that, that you brought up, I think is a really important one because another point that Yuval makes in that, yeah, again, fantastic book is this idea of formative institutions and the idea that the institutions in life that we participate in. And so that could be, you know, a variety of different things that we intersect with are supposed to be there to form us, to kind of make us into better people, to cause us to sacrifice for the good of that institution, the other people that we're doing this work with. And that when we work together in that shared enterprise, it can break down a lot of the barriers that we have with one another. So someone might be a different religion or they might be a different race or they might be from a different country, but we're trying to do this thing together. So just something like, you know, the Ambleside method. So you got some folks who came together and said, like, this is awesome. We would love to have a school like this. Cool. Let's do it. Let's come together. And, you know, other differences that they had with one another became less important because they were engaged in this shared enterprise with one another and they allowed themselves to become part of this community. And it was really interesting, too, because as I was writing this book, you know, I did a lot of the field work and research and all stuff before the pandemic struck. So a lot of the later work I had to do was sort of over Zoom and in kind of focus groups and things, which I was kind of hoping to do in person, but wasn't able to. And I was really impressed by the degree to which so many of these schools were able to really roll with the punches of the coronavirus. And I think it's when you have those tight-knit communities who really care about each other, they care about their kids, they care about what they're trying to do together, 
when catastrophe strikes, like that's the type of group you want to be a part of, right? <laughs> so it was amazing how many of these folks were saying, oh, well, you know, I still have to go into work. So the kids come over to our house or we, you know, figure someone lost their job. And so we went to help them. And so, you know, those types of tight knit community things, again, so even setting aside all the educational benefits, like enmeshing people in these communities, I think is good for them. It's a social support network. You're right, like any problems that we have in life, atomization or others, it, it helps to be an antidote for that. So I think these schools are interesting because they work across a couple different levels, that they're not just like an educational environment, but they're also these cool little communities. And uh, I mean, I know we're doing a, a podcast on your book, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we recently did a podcast with Professor Eric Wern from the Economic Center at Kennesaw State University. And his book, Defining Hybrid Homeschools in America, also goes at a great length at sort of like the philosophical approach and, and the importance of community. One area that your book covers, though, I think at, at much greater length, and which makes it in some sense a more practical volume for policymakers, is the question of policy. Sure. Uh, you know, so of course, it's great if parents have a desire to do this sort of thing, but they have to be in a policy environment that makes it easy to, to do this kind of thing. So let's go to, you know, sort of later in your book where you get into these policies, you identify six different areas and we don't have time to cover all of them because I also want to touch on your chapter on innovation, but you talk about homeschooling laws, private school regulations and accreditation, charter school authorizing. Interestingly, competency-based education frameworks, which I didn't, I didn't think about, but that makes perfect sense part-time enrollment statutes and private school choice programs. So let's start with the homeschooling laws. What are you looking for in a homeschooling law to make it easier for parents to engage in hybrid homeschooling? So many of these schools start not as sort of formally designated private schools. I'm just speaking on the private school side. It's different when public schools are doing it, but just talking about these private schools, a lot of them do start as small groups of homeschoolers, homeschooling co-ops, et cetera. And so I don't think it's surprising that in places, you know, starting in places like Texas that have very permissive homeschooling laws. So I think in order for this hybrid version to start, just to get off the ground, you have to be in places where homeschooling is more permissive. Interestingly, on the public school side, you know, one of the reasons I spoke to a lot of folks in Colorado that have a lot of these in the public school sector, but a big reason that many of those folks cite to it is a strong homeschooling community. And so that was driven by their, I think, you know, their laws are, are intersect with that. So, so yeah, having homeschooling laws that give the freedom to get these types of organizations off the ground, give them some time before they maybe incorporate as a private school becomes very important because the, the kind of decentralized and small ways in which these start, they're, they're not able to scale up that quickly. And so then what sort of private school regulations are important here? Because you, you think that the private school regulations are designed to regulate entities that physically have all the children there for a certain number of hours, right? We, we still are very much have this sort of seat time requirement, right? So if the private school says, oh, well, we're only a private school two or three days a week, and then the other two or three, the kids are not here, but they're doing something that's connected to what we do here, how does the law take that into account? Yes, so you've identified that exactly, right? So, and it sort of ties into the competency-based stuff as well, which is if you have private schooling regulations that are based around seat time, if you have them based around, exactly, that in order to classify as a private school, you have to be there five days a week, or you have to meet a certain number of days, or any of those sorts of things, or even in some ways, if you have 
curricular requirements or others that can get in the way because it's like, well, that's a class that is taught by parents at home versus one that's done at school. So any of those things can get crosswise. Right. And that's so, why it's so interesting. If the, if the state says, in order to be considered a private school, you have to teach English language arts, math, science, da, 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 and they go down the list and they say, well, actually, English language arts and math is done by the parents. Yep. And we're only focusing on, you know, science and history and a few other things. The state says, well, you don't look like a private school to us. Exactly. You don't, look, so, you don't look like a homeschool either. <laughs> right? Yeah. So some of these in some of these states, some some schools try to incorporate as like enrichment programs because they they run afoul of these private schooling regulations. OK, so there are ways around it that families have figured out how to operate despite the law, not officially recognizing what they're doing as a school. Yeah, and it would be interesting to talk to, and I didn't do this for the book, but it might be interesting to talk to in the future, sort of talking to lawyers about that. Because in some ways, these schools are very small, people don't know about them. Now, I don't know if if folks sort of identify as a school and act as a school at some point, whether, you know, the government will come calling and say, well, you don't really, you don't call yourself really an enrichment activity, except in, you know, all the forms that you fill out. So I think right. it is, I think it's important longer term then then part of that chapter on policy, sort of if we want to see more of these, as long as they're a kind of small peripheral thing, I don't think people are going to get too worked up over the distinction between an enrichment program and a private school and others. But if these things are going to grow, having some sort of legal understanding of where they sit in the in the firmament matters. Right. You alluded to the importance of competency-based education versus seat time. Why don't you just clarify what you mean by those two things and why yeah. it matters here? Yeah, so lots of states, whether you've like completed the fourth grade or you've passed ninth grade algebra is based on the number of hours of seat time, of you counting the hours that you sat in a chair in a class that's called fourth grade or called that. So it's not actually based on you demonstrating that you knew anything there. So, but yeah, so if your state says the only way you can demonstrate that you successfully completed the fourth grade or ninth grade algebra or whatever is because you sat in a classroom for a certain amount of time, you're not going to be able to do hybrid homeschooling, right? You've got to find some way to say if students can demonstrate that they learn the necessary material, but not, you know, in however long or short that it took them, that's kind of the only way for it to, to jive with the credit system. We'll get into private school choice programs in a bit. I want to take a quick detour and talk about innovation, because you spend a, quite a bit of time in the book on that. You'll be in fact, you have a whole chapter on it. So you quote Professor Gene, and I'm going to butcher this last name, Litka of uh, the University of Virginia in a Harvard Business Review article who said that to be successful, an innovation process must deliver three things, superior solutions, lower risks and cost of change, and employee buy-in. And you comment on this saying that hybrid homeschooling clears all three of these bars. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first one is probably the easiest. Well, the first two are, are kind of easy to understand. So, right, a superior solution. I think it's kind of obvious by parents choosing it, right? Like they could send their kids somewhere else, um, but they've identified this as a, as a better way to educate their kids. So, I think for them and, and sort of the proofs in the pudding there that they've created schools that better meet their needs than what they previous had. Now, I think the second one is really interesting, this idea of lower risk and cost. You know, because these schools only operate part-time, they tend to cost less than if they do a full-time private option. And so as a result of that, there's less risk, right? So 
you know, if you are spending $20,000 to send your kid to a school or you're spending $4,000, you know, you're risking one fifth of it to do that. So not to mention that you're also in more control. So families are playing a larger role in this. And so if what's going on in school is subpar, they have much more time and opportunity to work with it. So all in all, not saying that those things are subpar, but that they just have more control over the situation. It's a less risky thing. So that gives people this opportunity to say, you know what, I'll give it a try. It doesn't cost a lot. I'm still in a fair bit of control here. So I don't think it's gonna be something that's gonna negatively impact my kid. And it may be something that's really positive. And so it could be superior, could be that. And then the last is that employee buy-in. You know, I have a whole chapter devoted to educators where I had the opportunity to talk to lots of teachers and others and other sort of administrators that are, that are involved in this. And there are lots and lots of teachers who really love this school model. Now, I don't think it's for everybody because it requires you to develop a kind of relationship with parents that's more in-depth than is in, than, you know, sort of takes place in traditional schools. But, you know, any school that wants to do something new, whether that's a hybrid homeschool or not, has to have the buy-in of its work, you know, the, the people who work there. And this is true, actually, really across any business, right? You have to have the people who want to do it. If you're having to drag everyone kicking and screaming into some new process, it's just not going to work. So, you know, from the conversations I had with folks, a lot of them really have bought into it. So I think all three of those things, you know, the schools that I talk to do kind of clear those bars. Spoiler alert, you find in this chapter that hybrid homeschooling is an effective method of both allowing for innovation and also allowing innovations to spread. And you conclude with two lessons. One is that you should start with people and their problems. And two is that you should focus on solving a small number of major problems rather than a broad range of secondary needs. Now, these almost seem like truisms, you know, of course, you know, innovation, you're going to be starting with uh, people and their problems. Uh, and of course, you know, you should start with the important things, not secondary things. But it seems that in ed reform so often, actually, we're not doing those two things. So maybe you could just speak to why you think these two lessons, first, how you came to these two lessons and why you think they're important for people in the ed reform movement to internalize. Yeah, you know, I've done a lot of research and writing in the past on innovation and in that sixth chapter, which is all about sort of what hybrid homeschooling can tell us about innovation, I talk, you know, the great um, Everett Rogers book, Diffusion of Innovations and Crossing the Chasm and all of this other, you know, all this other stuff about about how that works. And so these are some of the the insights they had. But, you know, even not having read that, just talking to the, the folks that are running these schools, like it's very clear what they're trying to do. And so, yeah, that starting with people idea, I think you're right that the education reform movement has not always done a great job with that. I mean, think of any number of the kind of top-down reforms of like school accountability or teacher evaluation or those. That wasn't like people necessarily clamoring for those things. Those were generally elite projects that then had to like convince people that that was a problem or like the common core, right? Think of all the work that went to trying to convince people that they needed the common core. Whereas in this case, it's like from the bottom up, you have a lot of families who are saying, school isn't working for us. The schedule isn't working for us. This environment isn't working for us. And so then the entrepreneurs, the kind of school leaders are saying, okay, well, how can we fix those problems? And there's, you know, there's a great story in the book of the Fleming County, Kentucky public schools that have this Fleming County Performance Academy, which is a hybrid homeschooling model, how they went to like their local homeschoolers. And like brought them all into the the school library and said, how can we work together? Like, what problems do you have that you can solve? Like, we don't have to be adversaries. Like, we can work together. And amazingly, 
it worked, right? Because they said, oh, well, look, here are like the three or four problems that we have in the school district said, okay, let's find a way to fix them. And again, I just don't think it starts like that always. And that second bit of a small number of big problems that people have. Again, I think too often schools can be get more interested in minutia or sort of abstract or esoteric things. Like school being out of step with family life and like families not being able to spend quality time with one another or like kids being burned out and miserable, that is a big problem. And so like, don't worry about the other stuff, like fix that, like laser focus on like, how can we change our schedule to like fix that problem? And sure, there are umpteen other problems that are come down, gonna come down the line and that's fine. But what these things try to do is just directly solve that. But amazingly, when you get a group of people that share that, say like we're gonna fix this problem, I think it bleeds over into all of these other things. Right, because now you've got this cohesive community together. Now everyone's kind of rowing the boat in the same direction. So once you solve the big problem, you can all start working on the smaller problems. So I think again, these are these kind of lessons that hybrid homeschooling teaches us. That even if your school isn't a hybrid homeschool, thinking about those two kind of problem-solving strategies can make even traditional schools more effective. So I mean, I'd be remiss uh, since we are both employees of EdChoice if we didn't circle back and focus on that sixth policy item that you had, which is the role of private school choice programs. So how can education choice help families access hybrid homeschools? I mean, especially when we look at things like education savings accounts programs, you know, the whole point of these hybrid homeschools is that they're more flexible, right? So students are at school uh, in a traditional school environment for part of the time, but they're at home. And who knows, like when the students are at home, they might need to make use of a tutor or to get some other sort of therapies or others. And so having a funding mechanism that allows for flexibility. So some of that money spent on tuition, some of it spent on supplementary services that they're getting while they're schooling at home, to me is like the ideal funding mechanism for things like this. But even without that, I mean, one of the kind of enduring problems of school choice policy is lower voucher amounts. So school vouchers haven't been anywhere close to like what traditional public schools get or tuition tax credit scholarships or sometimes, you know, whatever, a half or a third or, what you know, whatever those work out to be of what traditional public schools are spending. Well, you know, if tuition is half of that because, you know, they split it between home and, and I interview, I sort of ask point blank several of these school leaders, they're like, oh yeah, that's more than enough money, right? Like, that's fine. Like that can actually cover this. So at least in the short term, while those types of things are happening, you know, I hope we move to more an education savings account focused school choice policy and that the amounts of money that go in there are larger. But particularly in the short term where some of these vouchers or tax credits are capped, these are schools where you can get a lot of bang for your buck. And there's schools that attract more middle income folks and lower income folks because, you know, schools that cost, you know, fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a year, that that's not where low and middle income folks are going. These are folks that just need a little bit of help, you know. And so some, again, some tax credit programs or tax deduction programs that can make that little bit of difference to go from no to yes can be huge in promoting these types of school options. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Again, the book is titled Hybrid Homeschooling by Michael Q. McShane, the Director of National Research at EdChoice. Thanks again for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Idea series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at edchoice and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time.